Happy Tuesday, everyone. Uh, if it is your first time with us, as Matt said uh, earlier, you are welcome and accepted here just as you are. Thank you for being here. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and just real quick before we get into the talk, I wanted to, while I had some of you, because it's July and half of us are gone, some of you in the room to let you know that this Friday we are not having happy hour at my house. Uh, we have the past few weeks, uh, and we will again next week, but just not this week. So if you show up at my house, uh, you'll be sad and lonely, and I would hate that. So uh, don't do it. Uh, but we will do it again this next week. Uh, as Matt said, uh, tonight we have the pleasure of hearing from Brian Gray. Brian was on staff here as a pastor from 2005 to 2011. Um, he has been uh, an incredible friend to me. I look up to him um, figuratively and quite literally. And uh, he's my mentor currently, and I'm just very excited that uh, we all get to hear from him. Uh, a year, uh, 10 years ago, tomorrow, he officiated my wedding. Uh, he just means a whole lot to me. So uh, would you all please welcome uh, Brian Gray to the stage. Well, uh, new and different environment for me, and yet there are so many familiar things for me in being back. Um, your welcome here just as you are has to never change. That just absolutely warms me at the soul level to keep hearing and to be told that instead of being over on this side telling people that uh, off the mic. I don't know where you always find talented musicians. You've done it again. And Jay, I had an experience of hearing your voice in everything is so much more atmospheric and anthemic when you're in the board. And I love that sound. It's just, there's great familiarity. So thanks for letting me be here. Uh, this is a joy. I'm going to tell you a bit <clears throat> as we talk this evening. Uh, I'm going to tell you a, a brief picture, a snapshot of senior year of college me. There's like only about five or six of you that know anything about who I am. But those of you will say, oh, the tiger got his stripes early. So my senior year, I'm 22 years old. Uh, I didn't want to take an extra year of college, so I doubled up on all of the necessary courses to graduate during my fourth year. And I was taking 23 units, and I played volleyball in college. And so I was... Uh, in regular season, taking 23 units, I would wake up at 6, and I would either be studying or working out, and I would go to bed at midnight, reset, and I would go again. And um, it's the, it is the most dense and busy time of my life I've ever experienced to this point. Uh, gosh, that was 30 years ago. And <clears throat> the one thing that sustained me in an otherwise, uh, I want to say, unacceptably inhuman pace that quarter, which was the first time in my life I began practicing Sabbath. Sabbath for me looked like a day. It looked like Sunday. It would actually, I used to be a total old school legalist. Again, no surprise to a couple of you. Uh, and so I would just sunset Saturday night. I would start a Sabbath practice. I'd hang out with friends. I would do that in a way that was guilt-free if I didn't have something else going on with uh, volleyball. All day Sunday, corporate worship in the morning at church, um, which I really enjoyed. I would take the longest nap on Sunday afternoon. I'd watch the San Francisco 49ers. Like I had this rhythmed out thing that I did uh, every Sunday. And then I would wait like a total legalist for 6 p.m., which I called sunset. And I would just go like racing out to the cafe and start studying for about another six hours that night. So two things. Uh, I learned uh, a few things about myself that semester, negatively speaking. 
uh, it's the first time that I developed this habit of I can tend to be a little bored or unfocused until I get right up at my capacity or maybe just a little bit above, and then I go into a hyper-focus. And so I got great grades, and it's, I began what really has been a 30-year addiction to workaholism for me. It started back then. It started that semester. Uh, and also, negatively speaking, during finals week, I uh, took so I was staying up so late and studying so much. I had an overdose on caffeine, hallucinated on caffeine. You can Google it; it can be done. I remember huddling in the corner of my room, um, <clears throat> and and thought in the total darkness, hiding in the corner of my bed, and I thought there were bats in the room. I knew there was a major problem. So I learned these things negatively speaking, positively speaking. That began for me a relationship with work rest rhythm that has uh, kind of never left my life. It was a really rich one. And so when I had these rhythms of Sabbath rest, uh, I started to learn to move from a Sabbath legalism towards what I would say is a real Sabbath joy. And so today, this is the most truly, um, we could talk about all the different spiritual disciplines that the followers of Jesus have practiced as they practice his way over the years. And for me, more than prayer, more than scriptures, more than silence and solitude, uh, more than practices of lifestyle simplicity, Sabbath has been more spiritually formative for me over the years. Uh, And so I'm really pleased to talk a bit about that tonight. My suggestion in, um, in talking about these, these things, though, is that Sabbath, it tends to, for most of us, feel like a rest antidote to a hurried, overworked, stressed, busy lifestyle. It certainly was for me when I first discovered the practice. The truth of the matter is it's been a common uh, response pattern as a spiritual practice throughout uh, the years <clears throat> for the followers of Jesus. And statistics today would say that the problem has not gone away. So a couple of really interesting studies have been coming out post-pandemic about the state of the workforce, state of the work world. Um, 43%, this is a survey that was put together by Slack, if you use that in your work communications, 43% of middle managers in the workforce report burnout in the United States. 29% of all U.S. workers feel very often or always burned out at work. This isn't just kind of this term, oh, I feel burned out. It's an actual definition by the World Health Organization uh, that's been established in a psychomedical journal. 52% of U.S. workers felt stressed a lot of the workday. And then just recently, I work at a place called the Denver Institute for Faith of Work, uh, Faith and Work. We basically do vocational discipleship through events, spiritual formation, leadership development, etc. And we did a survey of our constituents, say, what's What's not working for you in the work world? And 53% of our respondents, of 200 respondents with this survey, said that they were struggling with being overstressed, being fatigued, and feeling senses of burnout. So as I point to all of these, I want to suggest that something that was really personal to me that led to this practice originally is something that's really common to a lot of people, and it's bearing itself out as a cultural phenomenon, even in increasing measures from where we were five to 10 years ago. These are all statistics that are on the increase, sad to say. <clears throat> and so tonight we're gonna talk about Sabbath, both as an ancient and then as a very intentionally counter-cultural practice, which is actually intended as an antidote to burnout and to stress and to being overly hurried. 
and to regular fatigue. So Sabbath is a practice that's mentioned. We don't, it, truth of the matter is, while it's been so deeply formative, I haven't heard it talked about a whole ton in the life of the church. I came from a kind of a legalistic, a bit more fundamentalist background in the church. And so anything you could do to go find a command, yeah, that's just there to just obey. So just do what you're supposed to do. And there wasn't a lot of conversation about the whys, the hows, the nuances around Sabbath. It's just, look, it's in the Ten Commandments, do it. Um, the concept of the Sabbath and the practice actually shows up far more than we discuss it in the scriptures than we discuss in Christian practice. It's over 100 times in the Old Testament and 60 in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at Sabbath two ways tonight. And then Brandy's going to pick up with a second part uh, look at the Sabbath next week. So tonight we're going to talk about two things. One, we're just going to look at what did the Sabbath mean to Jesus uh, in his tradition, in his practice, in his teaching, how he upheld it. And that's going to be a bit of a why, the Sabbath. And then we're going to end just by talking about a couple of practical elements about how we might begin to incorporate this into our life. Okay, so kind of a why and a how on the Sabbath. And we're going to start with a passage uh, to capture this. It's going to be uh, in Mark 2. Before I do that, I've been jumping here and talking about this idea of the Sabbath without giving a bit of a working definition of what it is. It usually, uh, it literally comes from a word in the Hebrew, Shabbat, which means in its most literal form, to cease or to rest. And it also was, came to be the day, and for the Hebrews, they meant the 24-hour day, entire day, not a figurative day, not Sabbathy, etc., but a literal weekly day centered around this ceasing and this stopping. And so there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, and let's, be, let's, just, let's just get totally honest for a bit. There's a bunch of stuff, and you read in the Old Testament, you're like, what on earth is going on? It doesn't make any sense to me. It feels foreign. It feels outmoded. This is the type of stuff that makes me want to be Buddhist, etc., there's a lot of things that are practices in the Old Testament that interestingly, Jesus and the followers, uh, his followers, even faithful Jews at the time of Christ, didn't hold on to. There's a number of others that they did. That's for a whole nother time and place. What I want to suggest tonight is that Sabbath is one of the ones that is held on to, is intentionally practiced both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's by Jesus. So we're going to look at that in Mark chapter 2. So I'll read it. It's a short verse, a short little passage, and I'll just make a couple of comments on it as I go. Mark chapter 2, and this is going to be in verses 23 through 28. Ignore my typo on the slide. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Quick pause. There's two potential violations to the legalistic tax code approach of the Pharisees to this. One, they're walking along in a grain field. There were actual limitations about how much a good, adhering, God-fearing Jew could walk on a Sabbath day. If you walk within this limit, you're okay. If you walk over this limit, you're in violation of the Torah. So at one level, how much have they walked? It also begs the question, how long did the Pharisees walk to find out that they'd walked too much on the walk, but that's a different night. The second potential issue is that they have picked heads of grain as they walked by. This is an act of initiation. So in the Hebrew Torah, or it's actually in the uh, Midrash, the commentary that came out of the original 10 commandments, you couldn't initiate a new thing. To pick a head of grain to feed yourself or whatever else is initiating a new act and is a violation of Sabbath. So this enrages the Pharisees. One of these two or perhaps both, okay? So this is what gets Jesus in trouble. Pick up in verse 25. 
Jesus answered. Now he tells a parable, which is actually a real story from the Old Testament, and I'll give some context on it afterwards. Have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Okay, so uh, this is a story. It actually comes from 1 Samuel. So David's walking around this idea of the consecrated bread. Consecrated is just a literal meaning for what we might say as holy. Holy means consecrated or set apart for the special purposes and intentions of God. Okay, so David and his troops are coming through. They're hungry. They have no food. They stop at the temple and there's no bread for them to eat. And so they, he asks the priest and the priest gives to him the consecrated, the set apart. Let's, for us and our practical purposes, if we can lay this over, the communion bread, if you will. Okay. Wasn't used in the same way, but there was bread that was baked and it was set aside in the temple, set apart for holy purposes. David's argument back in 1 Samuel is, hey, this army has been conscripted by God, set apart for holy purposes. He literally says their armor is holy. And therefore, in this time of need, why wouldn't this holy bread be appropriate for the hungry? And the priest gives it to him. This is the interesting context Jesus throws back on. What he's basically saying, and will be borne out in the, the final idea in this little passage, is that this day of the Sabbath is actually a holy and set-apart thing for people, not for legalism, not for adherence, not for black and white tax code uh, keeping. This is set aside for people, okay? So as we pick up at the end, he then says to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man or not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we're going to come back to this at the end. In the very next passage in Mark 3, he goes on and he heals in the Sabbath. And so Mark is including two stories back to back, two violations of what it meant for the legal, uh, the religious leaders of the time, who are these legal adherents, two violations on their terms of what to do on Sabbath. And it's actually these things, not as otherwise teaching, not as other miracles, it's these violations of Sabbath by which we hear then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So heinous is the violation of their understanding of the law on Sabbath that this is what leads Jesus towards his death. Okay, to understand this at all, we're going to talk for Jesus and what did Jesus do with the Sabbath. Um, talk about a couple things. The first one is his context. Okay, so two images I want you to take a look at that are contemporary. The first one, this is an image of what's called an aruv. And I don't know if you can see it in the back, but this is actually from Denver. This is in the Aurora area. So if you see that thin filament that's at the top of the, uh, top of the light post, you can find these also down in Greenwood Village. You can find these aruvs, which is a line that demarcates a geographic area. You can find them in um, Crest Hill. Uh, actually, take that back, not Crest Hill. Hilltop, right next door. And the idea of an aruv is an Orthodox Jewish communities they mark out a line of filament. Aruv is a literal word for partnership. It's a partnership between the law and the neighborhood as to where a good Sabbath-adhering Jew can walk on the Sabbath. If you walk inside the Aruv, 
green light. If you walk past or outside the Aruv, you've extended beyond the legal limits of walking on Sabbath. This even modern day, we might say a bit more legalistic adherence of Sabbath is the context of how Jesus is having a conversation with people about the law. Next image. Again, modern day. There are elevators that, this is from New York City, that on the Sabbath day stop at every single floor. Why? Because if I get onto the elevator and I am a good God-fearing orthodox, and I might suggest a bit legalistic Jew, if I push a button for the seventh floor, I have initiated something new and I've initiated that elevator to stop, much like picking a head of grain. Now this to us might seem a little bit crazy, but this is the context with which Jesus is having dialogue about the practice of Sabbath. So he's utterly looking to correct this type of legalism. And he does so a couple different ways. So that's a bit about his context. Uh, The next comes from his, first of all, let's just suggest Jesus's example. So Jesus is also a God-fearing Jew. Jesus went to the same uh, rabbinical school up until the age of 13 that the Pharisees would have gone to. And his example, we would say, would come right out of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We turn to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm not going to take you there. That's another night. But a couple of different things about how the Hebrews understood God as compared to all the other people in the nations that surrounded them. In Genesis 1 and 2, really simply, we see a picture of God actually at work, creating and cultivating and making more. And then on the seventh day, this God rests. These are two super scandalous things. These would be religiously scandalous concepts in the ancient Near East. First of all, a God should never work. The gods exist to be served by humanity. And so they should be brought offerings and they should sit and enjoy the frivolity of God-likeness, but they should never be working gods. So the Hebrews were really communicating, not literally a science manual for how creation worked. That's not how the Hebrews understood Genesis. This was an apologetic. This is an explanation of who is God, what is he like, who are his people, what are they for? This God works, and then this God rests. Now, pause for a second. Maybe a discussion for later, but rhetorical question for you to think about. Why is it that an all-powerful God would need to rest? This is a bit of a problematic concept. If you fill in the blank with God needs to, fill in the blank, just as a suggestion, whatever you fill the blank in with, you're already off on the wrong foot. An all-powerful God doesn't have a need to, particularly a need to rest in this case. So really, what we've always understood is happening in this passage. Why does an all-powerful God need to rest? He's actually modeling what it means to be fully human. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you're made in the imago Dei, the image and likeness of a working God and a resting God. So Jesus' example as a good God-fearing Jew is he is imaging his life after both a human fully at work and a human fully in rest. So we then we see this in his practice, okay? So not just his example and what it means to image God, but we see it in his practice. Again, a good God-fearing Jew would go to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are told to us in Exodus 20 and then again in Deuteronomy 5, right before Egypt Israel enters into the promised land in their flight from Egypt. 
So let me briefly read the Ten Commandment that the Sabbath is drawn from. So this is, again, uh, we have no indication that Jesus is not wearing fi- uh, clothing of mixed fibers. This is an Old Testament idea. Or is not eating or not eating certain types of food that seem to be more obscure dietary customs. But he's clearly practicing Sabbath, and so this commandment is one he's upholding. Exodus 20. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Not by making it holy, it is already consecrated, it is already set apart by God. When he rested, he made it holy, okay? So your work is to keep it the way God intended it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. I want you to hear that Sabbath is not individualistic, but is inherently communal and extends across the full economy of the household and has as as its nature an element of economic justice built into it. Four, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. So we have a day set apart and made holy by God. Why? Because he rested on it first and issued the command, just keep it the way I made it. Just don't screw up the gift. And one verse in Deuteronomy 5 that's slightly different, when the Ten Commandments are retold to the nation of Israel, we get an interesting addition. Deuteronomy 5, it repeats almost verbatim what we just talked about, but the very last verse there under the Sabbath command is in verse 18. Just kidding, it's in verse 15. I was testing you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So this is an interesting thing. There's two things. You Sabbath because God just set it apart and made it holy, just keep it that way. And second, if you had forgotten, y'all were slaves And so there's two super interesting things in the practice of Jesus. He's moving in a tradition where Sabbath was always, always understood as a countercultural move to free the people of God from slavery and secondly, to abolish their idolatry, the worship or the giving of themselves, anything else other than what God would have for them. So Sabbath was always anti-slavery. Sabbath was always anti-idolatry. Now here I want to pause for a minute. I'm going to make you just reflect in silence. If if Sabbath has always contextually been about the breaking of slavery and the breaking of idolatry, the things that we worship, what might be those things for you? What makes the idea of a day of intentional slowing or rest difficult? What might you be enslaved to? What might you be worshiping? Pause and sit with us for a second.
If there is one idea I would love for you to hold on to, it might be this to walk away from tonight. For those who find Sabbath to be uh, easy uh, in spiritual formation language, I call this a downhill practice. It's pretty easy to run downhill, right? Um, they just know the joy of that. That's one thing. But if it's hard for you, if you don't practice it, if you have hey, got my reasons, hey, it's the kids, hey, I can't get enough done, hey, I've got this, 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 and whatever those objections you might have, my encouragement for you would be to consider the possibility that Jesus's tradition in which he practices is that Sabbath is always breaking of efficiency, productivity, get more doneism. All these are the types of things that for us might be enslaving or might be types of idols or things that we give our hearts to other than to God. Just sit with that. So when Jesus is practiced, this isn't just to be implied. We can read other places in the scriptures that he gets away to a quiet place to seek rest. And we see that a few places. In Luke 4, it says that he enters the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath day and he entered the tabernacle, comma, as was his custom. So we see these evidences of the ways that Jesus upholds, both in teaching, but then upholds in practice the Sabbath. One final piece that Jesus reflects on the Sabbath um, is that there's a promise offered in it. In one of the songs earlier, we looked, there was a verse uh, from Hebrews 4, and before this in Hebrews 4, the scriptures are always going and grabbing something that's known in the material world to give allegory or metaphor to say, yes, the spiritual world is like this. So in Hebrews 4, it goes and grabs that thing which is a known practice, Sabbath rest, to say that Jesus has in fact secured for us, for those who enter into an eternal Sabbath rest, the type of slowness, the type of pause, the anti-slavery, the anti-idolatry that that day is intended. And so there's a promise in essence for those who choose today and in this life to practice Sabbath, that you're kind of working out your chops for all of eternity. That you're practicing something that's a foretaste of what the joy of eternity is intending to look like. And so that's why this phrase makes sense that Jesus teaches. He says, the Sabbath is not made for people, but people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made for people, but people for the Sabbath. Okay, this is kind of a why the Sabbath. It's given as, uh, it's given as gift to us. It's given us to make us more fully human. It is given to abolish the points where we might be enslaved to cultural norms, cultural values, given to idols of our heart, all of these different things. But so what? This is an interesting why if you're a nerd like me. So I want to end tonight with a question of how. Matt, actually, why don't you put all four of those builds up as I talk about these since I've got a couple of them out of order. So if you want to begin or to extend or to expand what Sabbath looks like for you, the first thing that you're going to need to do is to stop. You're going to need to identify a period of time, and it's going to get set apart. Now, that's going to sound like the ultimate no-duh, but if Sabbath is one of those things like, oh, yeah, I work out a couple times a month whenever I get to it, it just never will become the type of rhythm that starts to deeply form you, the way the rhythm of the first thing in the morning, if you're looking at your phone, is deeply forming you on a daily basis. That's another sermon, too. Um, the first thing you're going to need to do is stop. What's the time in which you're going to stop? And second, what are the types of things you are going to stop doing? So 
uh, for me, that certainly means work uh, at work. That means digital connection to work. Uh, that actually means work around the house. Uh, so I've got a bunch of projects that I'm trying to get done. I just did a really fun little remodel in my house, but I just wouldn't do those on Sunday, and I would give myself fully to rest. So the first type of thing, if you're going to practice rest and slowing, is what will you stop from? What will you cease? The literal meaning of Shabbat is to cease and to stop. From what will you stop and when will you stop? You've got to make those as base commitments first. Jump to the third, because this is where I changed the order. In order to do that, you're going to need to prepare. Now, I'm not going to take as a given that everybody's uh, a Sabbath day exists for you or that it's Sunday, but that is me. So the way this would work out is I have to prepare on Saturday for what Sunday is going to look like. This is actually an Old Testament concept. It's called preparation day. So for the Jews to have Sabbath day, they had a preparation day. So we read in um, the story of Jesus' death that Joseph of Arimathea goes to the, to the uh, legal consuls and asks for the body of Ju Jesus on preparation day right before sunset because he can't do anything about the burial the next day because it would have been Sabbath. So he goes on prep preparation day. In order for me to Sabbath tomorrow, I have to take care of the burial tonight. It's a thing we might pass quickly over, but it's a detail. It was preparation day on the day that Jesus dies. This comes from a tradition in the Old Testament when they're gathering uh, uh, manna in the wilderness, on the sixth day they're to gather twice as much so that they don't do any gathering of it. And they're to do their cooking and their baking and their food making on that day so they can cease and they can slow and they can rest and they can delight the next day. So I would suggest on the idea of prepare is you're gonna need to think through what does a preparation day look like? What's the stuff you need to get done so that you cannot carry that over to a time when you're gonna rest? And the last two I'm going to be uh, brief on because these will be some of the themes that Brandy's going to pick up next week. The idea of start. Sabbath is not just what you don't do. It is the things that you give yourself intentionally to that are life-giving, that are restorative, that are helping you to become more fully human. And so I would encourage you to be thinking through making a list of what are life-giving practices to you. What do you, if there's, hey, here's the deal. You've got a day a week. What are all the great things you want to do on that day that don't involve your email, don't involve your work, don't involve everything else, but you've got a day. Like, what do you want in the gift? It's a really life-giving reflection. This is going to change for you over time. For me, uh, when I was in college, zero running zero running on Sunday. So zero working out. You're like, you've never worked out, we can tell. But zero running, zero physical activity because I was just beat physically for six days a week. So I slowed, no running. Flip the script. Sunday is my long run day. So if I'm running and I'm, I'm just run a couple short times during the week, Sunday becomes the long run day. Exact same activity, two different seasons of life. One was work, the same activity becomes restful. So in not being legalistic about this, we're asking the question, what types of life-giving things will help restore you to be a more fully human version of yourself? So what are you gonna start? Family game. I played life with my wife and daughter on the Sabbath this week. It was amazing. I watched a movie with them a couple weeks ago. So just think of what are the types of things you don't get to do that you get to do, you got a day, go. And for the people of God, and it's going to be different for a Tuesday night church, it almost always throughout history, 
you're the exception. But throughout all of history, it always included an element of corporate worship. And that's why the last concept of Sabbath is it's not individualistic. It was for the whole household. Sabbath is something that we practice together. So if you have roommates, do you have anyone else you can bring along for the ride? If you find yourself in a family, this can be incredibly challenging when you've got littles, uh, particularly, particularly little kids. My wife and I had to negotiate what does Sabbath look like together for us, individually for each of us, and collectively as a family on a given day. So I only get like a couple of hours where I get to go sit in my chair and read my book or go on my long run. And then I'm doing some stuff with the rest of the family. So the idea of Sabbath is a practice that we practice together. We're going to talk more about these next two and kind of part two of the evening next week around the idea of uh, what do we start, what practices bring us delight and joy, and how do we do that together. But I want to close with the invitation to the words and the teaching and the example of Jesus that Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. Uh, my hope for you this week is that you might simply pause and reflect what in my life, my beliefs, my attitudes might be getting in the way of the thing that God and Christ have gifted to you in the Sabbath? And what might you begin to stop? How might you begin to prepare to practice that? What things might give you life and restore you to be fully human? I don't anticipate that everyone else is going to think that Sabbath is the greatest of all the spiritual disciplines. That's for the real nerd workaholics like me but it would be my hope that this would be a way that you would grow in joy uh, in your practice of the way of Christ. So we'll pick this conversation up next week with uh, Brandy. And if you would, allow me just to pray for you tonight. Uh, Jesus, I want to say, first of all, thank you for modeling a fully human way. Thank you for offering to us a gift to walk in that way and particularly with a value on slowness and rest that might not otherwise be encouraged upon us in the culture in which we live. Give us courage, give us strength, give us reflection to know what it means to be with you in that. We ask this for your joy, we ask this for our own joy, and that we might become more like you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.